So coming back to our main sentence, faithful Bible teaching consistently shows Jesus to be the true hero. Guys, it shows him to be the true hero. We don't make him the true hero. We're not like Harry Potter wizards, you know, conjuring up, like, or we're not like hype men, you know, like trying to make him seem better than he actually is. But we actually display who he is. We reveal, we show. In fact, as expositors, the main job of an expositor is to expose what is there. You think of a reporter and, and she, she writes about this big expose. What's an expose? It's taking what is there but not known and showing it to the world. That's what we get to do every time we exposit the scriptures. And we show that Jesus is the true hero. Hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast, episode 221. Well, the voice that you heard at the beginning is my voice. It's kind of awkward, um, but the the audio or the guest on the show this week is actually me. Uh, this is a recording of a kind of a main session address or workshop that was recorded earlier this year in Costa Mesa, California at our most recent Expositors Collective training event. Uh, this is kind of one of the, the core or the main modules, uh, which is on the importance of Christ-centered preaching or consistently showing Jesus to be the true hero of every passage. And so what you're going to hear is uh, myself and my friend Clay Worrell um, each teach the same passage of scripture with two different emphases and then hear the workshop participants uh, point out the differences between uh, my approach and then Clay's approach, uh, followed by kind of a lecture from myself on how to prepare and deliver Christ-centered, gospel-honoring, grace-oriented sermons. So I hope this is uh, useful for you. I've been told by many people over the years that this content is potentially or actually ministry changing uh, and a real positive gift to our congregations. So I hope you enjoy this. Hey, speaking of in-person training events, our next one is going to be in Boise, Idaho coming up in October. So more details will be available on our website, expositorscollective.com, our social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, more details will be forthcoming, but since you're gonna be listening to a main session audio, perhaps you're thinking, hey, there's somebody that I know, a young or new Bible teacher that would benefit from this type of immersive training event. Well, October is coming sooner than you think, and be thinking of if you can go or who you can sponsor to our next event. All right, I'm gonna get out of the way and let you listen to a recording of uh, me. <laughs> it's kind of awkward, but here it is. I'm here to do the, uh, the Christ-centered preaching module, but here's what's gonna happen first. Uh, myself, and my very good friend, Clay Worrell, 
we are going to both teach the same passage, one after the other. So you're in for a treat, guys. Double blessings, right? Double scoops, double rainbows, double sermons. Um, me, me and Clay are each going to be teaching from Matthew chapter 26. And so I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew 26, uh, verses 6 down to 16. And so, like I said, you're, you're in for a treat to, uh, to hear uh, God's word. I'm going to read it to you in just a moment. And then notice, uh, not necessarily mannerisms or speaking quirks or who's better looking, um, but, uh, but notice maybe like the ways that we emphasize the things that are important to each of us as teachers and preachers. So I'm going to pray uh, very briefly and then read the passage. Uh, Lord, help us uh, through this little exercise and uh, throughout this, Lord. Our, our, some, some brains are already being stretched to the brim, but Lord, we know there's more for us. So help us, I pray. May the words of my mouth, meditation of all of our heart, be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our strength and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 26 starting in verse six. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me? If I deliver them over, if I deliver him over to you, and they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. All right, so here's kind of the first part the setting of the event. There's some observations that I can make about this event and want to explain them to you. Uh, Here we have this meal that takes place. Uh, We know from other gospel accounts that this meal is hosted by the previously dead and currently alive Lazarus. Uh, I believe we're told in other gospel accounts that this woman's name, who is unnamed in Matthew's account, is known as Mary, the sister of Martha. Here's some things that we can know about Mary. She is a worshiper. Whenever she appears, like in almost any section of scripture, do you know where you're gonna find her? At the feet of Jesus, over and over again. Her position is at the feet of her Lord Jesus. And here we have this description of her with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. If you're wondering what expensive ointment looks like, well, then just think of, essential oils, right? Very expensive, 
seemingly magical powers contained within an expensive little jar. And I'm sorry if I offended some of you. Uh, my wife has a lot of them, and sometimes they work. Um, <laughs> so this expensive ointment is poured out at the feet of Jesus. Again, if we compare this with the other versions of the story that the other gospel writers tell us, uh, we're told that it's like a, a year's wage. Uh, you know, this is, this is uh, quite a bit, maybe 18,000, I don't know, maybe much more. I'm not sure of all this, but you guys are preachers. You'll figure it out eventually, right? Um, so all of this money is dumped out in one lavish um, unretractable act of, of worship towards Jesus. Mary gave her best at Jesus's feet. Uh, John's gospel says that after she anointed Jesus with the oil in the alabaster flask, she wiped his feet with her hair. Uh, we know that this is expensive. Other gospel writers tell us this is her dowry. This is her hope chest. This is literally her hopes and dreams for the future. And she says, I want them to be poured out of the feet of Jesus as her act of worship. That's the setting. That's the event. Here's the reaction of the disciples and of Jesus. You see, the indignant disciples, they made a point they had a legitimate concern that this is lavish. This was not in the annual budget. Um, this could have been allocated for other topics or other themes or other pressing needs. Uh, we read that it was instigated by Judas. He was the one who gave the vocabulary and that gained momentum. And what started from just him saying it turned into they were saying it. So they had a legitimate concern, but they were wrong. So they were wrong in a couple different areas. So the disciples were wrong. Number one, they were wrong in who they were listening to. They allowed their um, vocabulary, they allowed their concerns, they allowed what they were passionate about to be shaped by, by the wrong person. Maybe we could all agree, you shouldn't get your marching orders from Judas Iscariot, right? But his pious sounding words influence both their hearts and their mouths and their actions. So here's, here's a word for you. It's important for you, yes, you, to be careful as to who you are listening to, who is influencing your thoughts, your words, your actions. What podcasts are you listening to? They might be using proper theological words. They might be expressing a care for the poor or any other wonderful kingdom values, but where are we listening to? The disciples were wrong in who they were listening to. Secondly, they were wrong in who they were not listening to. The disciples, they just didn't get it, right? They did not get that Jesus was going to be crucified and killed and later raised in Jerusalem. And, and in the Synoptic Gospels, like Jesus like repeats himself again and again and again, I'm going to Jerusalem and you know what's going to happen there? I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. I'm going to be raised again. And they're like, I don't think, no, no. But do you know who actually listened? Do you know who actually anointed him for burial? Do you know who listened with an open ear? Mary did. 
So the disciples were wrong in that they were listening to Judas. They were also wrong in that they were not listening to Jesus. You see, they gave little thought to his repeated predictions about what was going to take place. Mary, she might've heard him say it once, maybe once and a half. They, they, like, but what she heard, she believed and she acted on. You see, the disciples, they were like, well, it's like a metaphor. Like in a way, you're right. Don't we all die and rise every day? It's kind of a symbol for something else. But Mary heard it and she took the words of Jesus seriously. So the disciples, they heard so much, but they believed so little. Here's how Dr. Bob Pierce puts it. Others have done so much with so little. What have we, why have we done so little with so much? Here's a question for you. Are you a good listener? Are you paying attention? Are you understanding what you're hearing? And then ultimately, are we obeying what we're understanding? So they're wrong in who they were listening to. They were wrong in who they were not listening to. They were wrong also in what they gave. Here's what the disciples gave in this, in this story. They gave criticism. They gave criticism, of course not to Jesus. They love Jesus. They gave criticism to this well-meaning and insightful worshiper. Just like David's wife, how she scorned him for his dancing, the disciples scoffed at Mary's costly act of worship. Maybe you've been laughed at, scorned for your worship. Maybe some people said to you, why are you going to that preacher's training thing? You're not a preacher and you never will be. Uh, maybe you've, you're in that company. You're being scorned for your expression of devotion to the Lord. So we should definitely think twice before we tease someone for their steps of obedience and faith because the disciples, they were wrong in what they gave. They were wrong in that they gave criticism to the well-intentioned worshiper. And then finally, fourthly, they were wrong in what they did not give. So they gave out criticism, but here's what they held back they held back their own alabaster flasks. Like I said earlier, of all of the people, they should have been the one who were at his feet giving all unto him. He deserved to be anointed. The word Christos, Christ, means the anointed one. But instead of anointing him themselves, they scolded the one who was doing so. And likewise, what about us? That was there and then. What about here and now? Here's the question. What are you withholding from the Lord? You see, we're not called to break open literal alabaster flasks, but we are called to give up our dearest and our best for the Lord. Abraham was, right? And we remember that dedication to the rest of his days that lives on as an emblem of true devotion to the Lord. Sacrifice has a way of permeating and making itself known, and the whole house was filled with the scent of her fragrance. Finally, we have Judas. Judas was obsessed with the cost of sacrifice. He was unwilling to see something so valuable be poured out. He was unwilling to be poured out himself. In fact, he wanted to profit from Jesus. We read those final verses. He was the one that was almost striking a bargaining. He was going back and forth, haggling about what kind of price he could get. Rather than pouring out for Jesus, he's looking to profit from him. So in conclusion, 
kind of obvious. Number one, we don't want to be like Judas, right? Thinking of godliness as a means of gain. Number two, we don't want to be like the disciples who don't pay attention to the teaching of Jesus and mocked the one who actually did. And then may we learn from Mary, the anonymous, she's literally nameless in this account, anonymous, humble, sacrificing worshiper who gave her best. So I'll close with this question. What's keeping you from giving your best to the Lord today? And now my friend Clay is going to teach through these passages. There's no need to, there's no need to read it. Give him grace. <laughs> hey, friends. All right, I'm not going to reread the passage since Mike just read it. Um, but as I start here, I would like to invite you to jump into this story with me. Like Mike did, I want to recount the, the context of what was going on just a little bit with you. So we find ourselves here with Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, right? He's almost there. He's, he's in Bethany. And what we see is he's having dinner in the house, in the home of Simon the leper. Now, pause for a moment with me here. It's important, friends, as we read through Scripture, especially those of us who are students of the Bible, it's important that we do not allow our familiarity with passages and with stories and with the text to rob us of the shock factor that should be there when we look at it with fresh eyes. A meal in the home of a leper. Do you remember what the Levitical law for lepers was? They were unclean. They could not live among anyone other than other lepers. In fact, if somebody was to come close to a leper as they were walking down the street, the leper was required by law to shout out, unclean, unclean, so that they wouldn't accidentally touch them and become unclean themselves. Friends, lepers were more marginalized than just about anybody that we can think of in our society today. Lepers did not have dinner parties. Yet, Jesus and his followers were there in this house. They were reclining at table with this man. They were enjoying their dinner. The only way that this was possible was if Jesus had already healed Simon and made him clean. Jesus had not only physically healed Simon of the disease that was his leprosy, but he had brought him from isolation to community once again. So the opening scene of our story here is a scene of redemption. And then we're introduced to this unnamed woman in our text. Um, we know she's probably Mary, right? Um, she comes out while, somebody, while everybody's still at table, uh, reclining with an alabaster jar. And immediately those who were there would have recognized that alabaster jar as the vessel to hold essential oils. Um, ex very expensive perfume. And she walks over to Jesus and, and the suspicions were confirmed because the overpowering scent of pure nard would have filled the room. There would have been, this, this, this scent would have filled the room. 
And then she does something very dramatic. She pours this entire jar of oil over Christ's head. There would have been a gasp in the room. There was unfathomable value poured over this man, a a year's worth of wages. That is a a substantial amount of money. The response in the room was from shock to outrage, with some turning to her in rebuke, saying, imagine the poor that could have been fed with all of that money. But then Jesus speaks up. He responds, he says, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Friends, Jesus affirms her actions, all the while pointing to the cross and to the gospel. Then in the story, our focus is brought to Judas. He's a familiar character to us, right? Undoubtedly, as as the treasurer of the group whom we know was scraping off the top of the funds, he was a little bit offended by this foolish use of finances. And for Judas, this was the last straw. Um, for, for, For Judas, he had lost faith in this moment, in this Jesus that he had been following for these last years of his life. He figured he would cut his losses and turn him over for 30 pieces of silver. So this is a dramatic story, right? But what does it teach us? It teaches us many things But today, I would like to focus on just three things that it shows us about Jesus. First, this shows us that Jesus is in the business of redeeming, healing, cleansing, and restoring. As I mentioned, our our opening scene itself sets the tone already for who Jesus is and what he does. Simon the leper was brought from isolation to being, from being marginalized into community, from being unclean to being whole, from being sick to being well, from being marginalized to being accepted. Why? Because he was with Jesus. Friends, this is what Jesus does. We see it in his very mission statement that he quoted from Isaiah 61 in Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. He set to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is what he does. This is what he has done in many of our lives, and this is what he will do for many more as we turn to him. The second thing it shows us about Jesus, friends, is that Jesus is more valuable than any earthly thing, and Jesus is, in fact, worthy of our worship. It's worth noting that that Jesus did not rebuke Mary for pouring out her life savings and her financial security on him in a moment. 
He didn't rebuke her for this act of worshipful adornment. Rather, he affirmed her. Why? Why is this? It's because he is the God of creation that is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. Amen? Also, it's because trusting him is more valuable than anything that this world has to offer. Jesus said himself back in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19 through 21, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroys and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The third thing, and finally, it shows about us is about Jesus, is though Mary's sacrifice and her offering was great, Jesus's sacrifice and offering for each of us is infinitely greater. Friends, this is my favorite part of this whole thing. Mary may have poured out her oil for Jesus, but brothers and sisters, Jesus poured out his very blood for Mary and for you and for me. Jesus, in instituting the Lord's Supper, he took the cup and he said, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Also, Mary may have surrendered her earthly riches for Jesus, but Jesus surrendered his heavenly riches for Mary and for you and for me. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that, that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And friends, that's not talking about money. Also, Mary may have been shamed and rebuked for her apparent foolishness for Jesus, but Jesus was scorned and rejected. He was mocked, tortured, and killed for Mary and for you and for me. Hebrews 12.2 says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So what should our response to all of this be? This that we're learning about who Jesus is. Should we be like Mary, friends? Well, yes, of course we should. But how and why? We should be like Mary because of who Jesus is and because of what he has done for you and for me. If Jesus is willing to sacrifice and give so much for you and I to bring us forgiveness, liberty, and hope, it is a small thing to lay down our temporal comfort and our possessions and our agenda. But we love him, why? Because he first loved us. Amen? Amen. All right. Thank you, Clay. Now we're going to get interactive uh, once again. Uh, Nick, Katie, are you around? I want to hand you this, uh, this microphone, and I'm going to switch uh, to this one, sound people.
Um, all right, so here's, here's some questions. Guys, what differences did you notice between the first and the second? All right, we've got some answers here. What'd you notice between those two messages? Uh, the first message assumed that it was Lazarus's house when it doesn't say that in the text. <laughs> what was that all about, Mike? All right, Mike stands by his, and he. Um, so Mike stands by his uh, statement. That this is Lazarus's house. All right. Let's just uh, change topic. <laughs> uh, the second sermon was much more Christocentric than the first one. It's just not even close. Not even close. But hang on, okay, hang wait. on. Let hey, me talk to him. I, <laughs> all right. Somebody here likes your sermon. Well, she wants me, to talk about right, it. Right. So, so what do you mean his was more Christ? I. I, I talked about Jesus the whole time. The second sermon was really geared towards pointing people towards the cross and towards redemption. I don't think you mentioned redemption in yours at all. <laughs> all right. Okay, I'm about to crack it. All right. All right. Let's hear I'm sorry. He is a Baptist minister, and you always have to end with the cross. So that's why. But he, no, he spoke about Jesus throughout, and I love the way you compared and contrast Mary with the disciples. Okay, and um, all the way through, and you, and he mentioned Jesus a lot. Look at my notes. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. Hey, hey, Nick, do you think we should let people in on on what's going on? Yeah, let them. I'll let you. Yeah, well, okay, you? let's take a. Who liked Mike's sermon? Who thought it was awesome? Did you guys take notes? Did, did, who took notes on Mike's sermon? All right. You, you want to let him in on it now, Mike? Well, it was, it was intentionally designed to be focused upon you and what you should be doing and your failures and their failures and our failure to give Jesus what he deserves. And the second was intentionally designed to highlight Christ and what he has given. Mm. And that when we, there's no point talking about anything being poured out without referencing the pouring out of Christ's own blood for his people. So, yeah. So, but, Mike, Mike, you kind of told us to do better and to try harder. Yeah, so, don't yeah. be like Judas, the baddie, yeah. but be like Mary, the goodie. Yeah. yeah. Any, any other like, things that people noticed? Or maybe it was a little bit too early, we, we gave the cat out of the bag, but. I was taking a beating up here, so I want to, <laughs> I want to say, uh, keep going, brother. Keep going. I, I, I really enjoy both, of, both of, the, of the storytelling, but I just feel like the second one definitely uh, was more of a storytelling, and it brought you into the whole sense of the Bible, into the sense, like, come with me. Let me show you what was happening. Right. You know, and I feel like the first one was more of, uh, of just or theology, a sense of like, you know, this is what we know, we already assumed that we know all this stuff, mm. you know, it was or it wasn't his house or it wasn't, we kind of assume all that, you know, so, but for the second one, I just feel like it was just bringing you in, and it was just capturing 
the people into yeah. what it was. And I, that's when you were saying, <laughs> I was like, yeah. So yeah, but great. <laughs> well, I thank you. I appreciate those kind words, brother. Um, but yeah, it's, it's as if maybe, maybe the, first, the first teaching is kind of like skimming a stone over the surface of the water, you know, dipping into the Bible to find something and then quickly like launching it at you guys. Ready, aim, fire, boom. You know, and then, oh, I need, I need more ammunition. So they kind of, oh, let's say, what's next? Oh, Judas, all right, let's talk about Judas a bit. You know, rather than going deep into the story, it's kind of, yeah, skimming on the top. But the main focus of that sermon was about you and what you need to do. Whereas the second one was what happened and what does this mean? All right. Yeah. What would you say about me if I liked the first one? It was like, in my personality, it's like I like sermons like that where I just like, boom, what should I do? But do you see how silly that is? Because we're saved by grace. It's not the things that we do. Until the other gentleman came up. So I left with a question of, you know, because you left us with a question, what are we going to do? So of course it's like, oh, what am I going to do? Tell others, what am I not doing right? Here's the, the whip, right? Yeah. And then when the other guy, I'm sorry, I forgot his name. Um, Clay, the Clay. wonderful Clay World. <laughs> anyway, it was like, oh man, the heart. You know, it's like you are absolutely right, Pastor. It's just like, <laughs> let the word preach. Let... It's like the heart, it's like you don't have to tell me what to do. Once I meet Jesus and I, I feel his presence, I'll do it out of love. Yeah, yeah. yeah that was good. Thank yeah. you. Um, Thank you. So would we say that both sermons, in a way, incited us to do things, but the way that they incited us was different? Would you agree, Mike? Yeah, yeah, I believe so. Thank you for even that vocabulary. You know, it's like the second sermon kind of opened the door and like invited Jesus into the room. And then we, like Mary, are just like, oh, what can, I, what can I give for him? You know, rather than the other one where it's like, it's a stained glass window. It's like, look at that, you know, look at all its perfections. Look at how great it is. Look at how bad you are. And it's like, well, I guess I should change, you know. Uh, yeah, Brian Chappell speaks about um, certain preaching being just like another brick in the backpack. And like, and, and people come to our, our churches, to our, our youth groups, our women's studies, and, and like, and I'll, I want to say they, but I'll just say we. And we are so burdened, you know? And we know how much we've messed up already. And then oftentimes we have good, hard preaching that just tells you that you're, you also, there's ways that you suck that you don't even know about yet, you know? <laughs> and, and then it can be, oh, you're just, again, you just, it's another brick in the backpack rather than the lifting hope of the, the gospel of Jesus. I think maybe like one or two, and then we'll get into the main content. Well, this is also main content, the rest of the main content. How's it going, David Young? So I, uh, I noticed um, specifically is uh, on the first sermon, I felt like I was receiving Mike's notes, where with Clay's, I felt God's notes. And more specifically is that you spoke generally about text and even your references, where Clay took us specifically to the text. Ah. Well, isn't, isn't that good news? Because there's, there's, there's the hope of the gospel is in the actual texts, you know? And, and, and it's not, and we'll talk about this in a, in a moment or two, but it's not that we have to leave this book to find good news. But the deeper we go into it, the more hope, the more gospel, the more wonder and love that there's in there. So Nick, do you want to find one more person? Or yeah. there's, there's a couple of hands, but I think we just have to be okay. selective. Actually, hey, Nick, you're like a long distance runner. What about this side okay, of the room? Okay, yeah, let's do it. 
Do you want me to run? I'll run. <laughs> I said runner. <laughs> so I would say in the first one, um, it was a lot of probing questions, like an interviewing probing questions or like leading questions that make you reflect and it distracts from actually the scriptures and what Jesus is doing. Mm. But in the second one, it was more Jesus-centered, but those probing questions were allowing the Holy Spirit to ask us those as we're listening to the scriptures. Um, so I personally like the second one more than the first one because I felt like I was being attacked. You're supposed in the to, first yeah. One. yeah. You're supposed to. That's the point. That's yeah. the point. And, and to, to be clear, if it wasn't yet, like Mike was intentionally preaching in a way that he wouldn't usually preach. Correct, yeah. yeah. And it was, okay. it was a, yeah, it was a, it was a challenging exercise to put that together. And I'll talk about this in a few minutes, but like, I used to preach like that. That used to be standard Sunday morning, Wednesday night. That was my style. And uh, I'll tell you in a few minutes about how, how the Lord convinced me that uh, I should adopt a different style. So there's much more that could be said. And um, there's opportunities for it. We have some Q&A panels. And so I would look forward to, to more of that. But um, so here, here's what we've seen, what we've seen so far. Uh, I believe that Clay Worrell kind of demonstrated what, what we're calling Christ-centered preaching. There's other like vocabulary for it, grace-oriented preaching, gospel-saturated, whatever you want to call it. There's just a different like vibe, a different style, a different emphasis um, that came through in, in Clay's sermon. And I want to talk to you about how you can do the same thing. How can you also open the door and invite the presence of the Lord in? How can you cause people to, to feel as if like, I have hope and I see the glory of the gospel and I want to live my life in honor of this sacrificing savior, Jesus. So here's some verses that are important to me. We have them on the screen in three, two, one. Also, AV team, you've been doing great the whole time. Thank you, we just acknowledge you, thank you. All right, so here's what Jesus said to the religious leaders of, of his day. Uh, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but, but it's them that bear witness about me. Uh, next, in Luke 24, which Tim referenced earlier on, uh, he says this, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe that all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then next, verse 44, he says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms uh, should be fulfilled. And so these, these verses um, have become very precious to me. And, and those last two, uh, on the, the road to Emmaus, it's the, the freshly resurrected Jesus walking along there and having this conversation where again and again, it says that he's beginning with Moses and the prophets and the law. He's explaining how they are pointing towards him. And he's explaining how the events that took place in Jerusalem earlier that weekend are in culmination or in fulfillment of what has already taken place. And, and he talks about, you know, kind of all of them. And here's a question that I ask myself before I teach any passage, no matter what testament, I think, what would Jesus say about this passage on the road to Emmaus? 
So beginning at the beginning of Moses and going all the way throughout the law and the prophets and the Psalms, it, um, if, if those two um, saddened disciples learning from Jesus about this, if they would have said, well, but hey, sir, you stranger on the road with all the answers, what about Isaiah 53? Uh, you, you, sir, what about Psalm 3? Uh, what about Joel 2? How does what took place in Jerusalem this last weekend connect with that? And so kind of as like this mental exercise, I try to think, how would he answer? And, and here is um, kind of the sentence that I want to talk about. Uh, this is the big idea for the next few moments that we have together. Uh, if you're taking notes, you should write one sentence down. This sentence, okay? Or if you're using your workbook, it's already written for you. <laughs> um, you should underline it. Highlight it. Faithful Bible teaching consistently shows Jesus to be the true hero. Faithful Bible teaching consistently shows Jesus to be the true hero. Here's what I believe with all my heart. This is faithful Bible teaching. This is not just the, the latest trend, a novel innovation. This is historic, orthodox, faithful interpretation of the scriptures, faithfully showing that Jesus is the true hero of the individuals and the main, the whole Bible has one hero and his name is Jesus. And so if we believe the verses that we started with, if Jesus is correct in John 5 and Luke 24, then we should expect to see that scriptures bear witness to Jesus Christ and that the various genres of Old Testament scripture, that there are things that are contained in them that are concerning himself and that there are things that are written of me in the Old Testament passage, Jesus would say. And so if that's true, guys, and it is, if that's the case, then we shouldn't be surprised to see that there are, and here's a list, there are predictive passage, passages that are consciously and that are deliberately pointing forward to a yet-to-arrive messianic figure, okay? Now, now, I think every Christian in the world believes that some of the Old Testament is about Jesus. You know, I kind of referenced Isaiah 53, or <clears throat> Isaiah, you Americans, um, Isaiah, um, Isaiah 53. Like, there's those kind of passages where there's a, a deliberate, conscious, like, prophesying into the coming future uh, Messiah. So everyone, everyone believes that. But guys, I wanna be kind of controversial. I don't wanna say that the, the Psalms don't just contain a few Messianic Psalms. They're all Messianic. The whole book is a Messianic book from Genesis to, uh, uh, what's the last one? Uh, Malachi, Genesis, sorry, Genesis to Malachi. The whole book is a Messianic book containing multiple Messianic chapters pointing towards God's great rescuer of the coming Messiah. So that means we shouldn't be surprised at those. We also shouldn't be surprised at these mysterious uh, theophanies that appear from time to time in the Old Testament. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time on this, but there's times in, in the Old Testament where like, God shows up in human form? What's up with that? Anyway, we shouldn't be surprised because Jesus said there's loads of stuff pointing towards him in those earlier parts of the Bible. We shouldn't be surprised that there are institutions that are inaugurated in the pages of the Old Testament and that they are actually pointers beyond themselves 
to the Messiah who's going to come and who's going to fulfill them and who's going to replace them. The Mosaic law is an institution that points towards the ultimate law keeper. The tabernacle, the, the sacrificial system, all of that is pointing towards the ultimate like sacrifice, the one that brings real and true and lasting forgiveness of sins and is the real New Testament place of worship. Not just institutions, but also the offices that play such a huge role in the pages of the First Testament, we believe that they are preparatory for the coming work of the Messiah Jesus, that he is the ultimate prophet who is to come, who's not just going to bear God's word, but as we just found out through our inductive Bible study, is God's word incarnate, God's word made flesh, that, that Jesus is the ultimate priest, bringing sinful people into the presence of God by the once and for all sacrifice of himself. And I would say he's the priest to end all priests. And so we shouldn't also be surprised to see acts of rescue and redemption. Uh, times where we have the people of God who are doomed, dying, and lost, and God makes a way where there is no way. I think there's a song about that. He makes ways. Um, and, and we should not be surprised to find that the acts of rescue point towards a greater rescuer. The acts of redemption point towards a greater redeemer. The acts of deliverance point towards the ultimate deliverer. Bible teachers, future, present Bible teachers, I believe your job, your commission is to like responsibly search for those, to uncover those, and to explain them and apply them to all who are listening. So coming back to our main sentence, faithful Bible teaching consistently shows Jesus to be the true hero. Guys, it shows him to be the true hero. We don't make him the true hero. We're not like Harry Potter wizards, you know, conjuring up, like, or we're not like hype men, you know, like trying to make him seem better than he actually is. But we actually display who he is. We reveal, we show. In fact, as expositors, the main job of an expositor is to expose what is there. You think of a reporter and, and she, she writes about this big expose. What's an expose? It's taking what is there but not known and showing it to the world. That's what we get to do every time we exposit the scriptures. And we show that Jesus is the true hero. Because the Bible makes the most sense through this lens. Uh, Jesus, on the road to Emmaus and a bunch of other places, is saying that the, the whole Bible, from front to end, makes the most sense in its deepest and richest capacity only by reading it through like Jesus-shaped goggles or Jesus-colored lenses. See, here's, here's a story of a film, and, and the film is kind of old, all right? <laughs> but so am I. So in my formative years, I remember sitting in the cinema in Bonzel, in Bonzel, North, North County, San Diego, watching this M. Night Shyamalan film, right? And this M. Night Shyamalan film was about a young boy, and this boy's name was Cole Sear, and he is haunted by a dark secret. He is visited by ghosts, ghosts who have unfinished business left to do on earth. And he is frightened by these visitations. And, and then so he is paired with Dr. Michael Crow. 
the child psychologist who lives with his own inner anguish and turmoil. And together, they both, the young boy and Bruce Willis, <laughs> they uncover the truth about this supernatural ability and they make a discovery that jolts both of them. You guys know what I'm talking about? <laughs> this is called The Sixth Sense. It's from 1999, pivotal in my, in my childhood. And I'm sorry for the spoiler alert, but, but my friends, what is the shocking discovery that they discover at the end of the film? Bruce Willis is dead the whole time. So there's troubled ghosts with unfinished business that come to this young boy, and we learn in the final few moments of the film that Bruce Willis is simply one of those ghosts. And I remember just being like, <gasps> and the person next to me also taking a sharp intake of breath. And as, when it finished, when the credits roll, you know, we looked at each other and we said what so many other people said was like, <gasps> it all makes sense now. And then we all said this, we have got to see this again. Because there was like so much stuff in the film. There was details that seemed insignificant in the first part of the story, that once you learn something about the main character at the end of the story, you realize it all makes sense now. There's confusing scenarios that make a lot of sense. So it's true for this film and it's true for this book. The whole story only really comes together once you learn the truth about the main character, right? And it happens at the end. And the main character of this book well, you, you looked at it earlier, right? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word came down. Darkness could not overcome it. He does battle against the darkness and he has victory. The whole book makes sense. Now it makes sense. And then also, oh, I want to read it again. I, I went all the way to the end and I discovered something. Oh, I bet the whole thing's going to be even better the second time. And it is and the third, and the fourth, ad nauseum. It keeps on going. Another example from my, from my youth, uh, in my, my math book, I don't know if your school districts had this or not, but like the math book had the answers in the back. Did anyone else? Uh, so does the Bible. It has the answers in the back. It tells you all the important stuff in the back of the book. And that makes sense of the problems in the front of it. So, to borrow the language from Australian uh, Anglican Graham Goldsworthy, we want to preach the whole Bible as Christian literature. The whole Bible is ours, right? So we should aim for distinctively Christian sermons. That means that there should be a, a distinctively Christian way of communicating our passages. And, and I fear that Many sermons that are preached uh, from Christian pulpits and Christian sermons, like they could just be copied and pasted and they could have been preached yesterday, the Saturday before in a faithful Jewish congregation. A Jewish rabbi could preach a lot of your sermons, right? And they would work. Your Old Testament sermons, maybe they'd work just, just fine down the street at the local synagogue. Think about the last time you preached the Bible. Did you talk about Jesus? Maybe some of you were like, hang on a second. I talked about Jesus. I said his name plenty of times. Well, then maybe I'll change the illustration. Maybe uh, the local imam could have preached that sermon at the local mosque. They talk about Jesus. 
you know, or at the, at the Mormon tabernacle, they talk about Jesus as well. But the Jesus that they talk about, they do not glory in the risen savior, the one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. So let's leave the synagogue sermons to the synagogues and let us preach Christ. And so from what I'm saying, like maybe you're getting the impression, okay, this is kind of an Old Testament hermeneutic. This is how we deal with the first 39 books of the Bible. Yeah, and the other ones as well. You noticed that the first, the two example sermons that we had, they were not just from the New Testament. They were from the gospels. Do you know it's possible to teach from the gospels and not preach the gospel? Um, To make it only a, a way to bash people over the head and give them guilt. And as I said earlier, put more bricks in their backpack rather than allowing the actual gospel to come through in our gospel teachings. It's important that whatever passage we're preaching, that we present like the salvation of God in a way that strips away any failed hope of our own righteousness. Remind our people and ourselves every week that salvation is not earned, nor is it deserved. If all we're preaching is a list of rules to follow, well, then hypothetically, someone could follow all of those rules and have no need for Jesus. Because we're the hero, right? We're the ones strong enough and we're the ones wise enough. We're the ones devout enough to obey them. My friends, I don't know what religion that is, but it's not Christianity. So faithful Bible teaching consistently shows Jesus to be the true hero. Consistently. That means in the First Testament and the Second Testament. That means on Wednesday nights and Sunday morning. That means to youth groups and to adult Sunday congregations consistently. Because my friends, the good news of the gospel, it's not only for salvation, but it's for sanctification as well. It's how we grow as Christians. I I mentioned earlier on that in my early years as a a teacher or preacher, pastor, most of my sermons sounded like the one that you had the misfortune of hearing um, a few moments ago. Um, I believed that like, we need to get more serious about evangelism. Guys, and we do. We need to get into the word more. And we do. We need to pray more. But it came off as, you need to do this. You need to do that. And you need to just keep on following my wonderful example. I remember being particularly burdened about the lack of attendance at our, at our prayer meeting and then going through the book of Jonah, you know? And then imagine my glee when I read Jonah through fresh eyes and I noticed that in Jonah chapter one, as the ship is being rocked back and forth, that the pagan sailors were upstairs praying and Jonah the prophet was downstairs sleeping. I remember thinking, that'll get them. Oh boy, that'll get them. And I preached a sermon about how the pagans are able to go to prayer meetings while the faithful prophets skip the prayer meetings and they don't come. Why aren't you at prayer meeting? And you know what? That Wednesday, people came, but not the week after or ever again, you know? Like it's possible, like guilt can motivate people a little while, but that is not heart change. That is not opening the door and having the presence of Jesus come in through his word and changing hearts on the spot. I am, I mentioned earlier on, I get to, to host the Expositors Collective podcast, which you should all subscribe to um, right now. No. Hopefully the love of Jesus compels. Anyway, so one of the reasons why I'm like so excited to like 
be involved in like such a podcast is because like a, a podcast changed my life. Like back in 2007, this is like before like RSS feeds. Anyway, I was listening to this audio. Uh, I remember in my old office on Patrick's Hill in, in Ireland, I was listening to uh, headphones that had wires on them, right? And I was listening to a, a Presbyterian man from New York by the name of Dr. Timothy Keller, and he was speaking about Christ-centered ministry, gospel-centered ministry. And he was speaking about how when we preach, sometimes Jesus can just be a background character that we use to help the main character, which is you, do what I want you to do. And speak, And he was talking about how in our sermons, oftentimes we're talking about the, the little boy who gave his loaves and fishes to Jesus. And what about you? What loaves and fishes do you have? You should be doing this instead of focusing on Jesus, the bread of life, come down to earth, broken and given to men that we might have like nourishment from forever. So I realized that and like so convicted. And I remember like, just like sliding out of my seat and like getting actually onto my knees, feeling the conviction of like, I've been teaching the Bible all wrong. And I've been like battering these poor people with just like, do better, try harder, try harder. Why aren't you listening to me? Come on, don't you wanna see revival? It's never gonna come unless you get up your acts together. And I repented and I said, God, I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? Would you allow me, if you give me another chance to ever teach your word, allow me to make Jesus the hero. And you know, I've been trying imperfectly, you know, but from 2007 up until this moment, like this is like one of my huge focuses. I want it to be true in my life. I want to help as many people to be saved from the mistakes that I was making earlier on. <clears throat> so the question for you, is the gracious love of Jesus and his rescue of sinners, is it one topic that you preach among a lot of topics or is it a consistent theme of all your teaching and preaching? I, I realize that some people here are regular teachers and preachers. You, you preach every week. Um, many of you are just getting into this. Boy, I thank the Lord that you're here. I'm glad that you are here. And I'm glad that you get to, to hear and learn from what I did wrong for so long and that you get a chance. You get a chance to make to faithfully teach the Bible and show that Jesus is the true hero. Uh, really briefly, how do we do this? Well, here's a slide. Oh, oh we'll, we'll skip that, I'm going long. Uh, is there another slide after that? Is there a list? Nope, go back, okay. It's not you, AV, it's me. You're great. <laughs> so here's some ways to do it, and, and I, I don't have time to get into all of this. In your booklet, in, there's an appendix on page 47. There's a couple different pages listing out some of the ways that we can responsibly point people towards the good news of the gospel from different genres, different kinds of, of literature, and how we can do this in a way that is uh, faithful rather than merely 49. fanciful. 49? I'm sorry, I had the... 2018 first edition, where it's 47. <laughs> and so that speaks about some of the ways that we can point people towards the Lord from the passages that we are doing. Here's what we're going to do now. We're going to try it. We're going to try it in your groups. So we have some group work up there. And those are some sections of scripture 
that myself and the rest of the steering team, uh, we've kind of put together. And we believe that every one of these passages has a way towards the hope of the good news of Jesus Christ and his gospel. And together, you guys are going to spend some time working, showing, figuring it out. And then myself and Nick are going to come around and get some, get some reports. So group leaders, uh, your job is to guide the conversation, to, to help people, to remember what has been said, maybe to use some of those things that are there on page 47 to show how in Jonah 4, 2 Samuel 9, etc., we could be pointing people not towards you and your ability to do the right thing, but Christ and what he has done for us. Guys, wasn't that a refreshing and helpful talk? Let's say thanks to him. Okay, and so here's how we're going to do it so that you're not just picking your own passages. So here's, uh, just follow me on this, group leaders particularly. Group one, Jonah four. So just go down the line. Group two, 2 Samuel nine. Group three, Matthew 13. Group four, Numbers 14. Group five, Genesis 22. Group six, Psalm one. Group seven, Exodus 18. And then again, eight, start there. Jonah 4, 9, 2 Samuel 10, Matthew 13, 11, Numbers 14, and 12, Genesis 22. So do those in your groups, work through it. And you know what I'd love for you guys to do? We're going to go around the room and ask you for your interpretation. You're going to have somebody present on behalf of your group as to what you discovered and how you would interpret this in a Christ-centered manner. But something I think is really helpful is if you can interpret it in both ways. So maybe when we come to your group, you'll tell us, well, maybe a, a, a me-center or egocentric way of approaching this passage would be this, but here's a Christ-centered way of approaching this passage. All right, we'll be back in a few minutes. Here's what we're going to do. Um, for, for some of these passages, there's two different groups that are sharing a verse. I'd love to hear uh, brief summaries of the way that a person could preach the good news from this passage. And so myself and either Pete or Nick will be coming around to the various groups. Um, what groups has done Jonah chapter 4? All right, we've got a Jonah 4 over here. Are there any other Jonah 4s? Okay. All right, we got James. He's going to speak. All, All right. right, so we're Jonah we're 4, about, guys. Shh. Jonah chapter 4. This is the uh, chapter where Jonah is sitting, uh, throwing himself a pity party after God has just uh, extended mercy to Nineveh. Yeah, you and uh, he says, you know, God, kill me now. You know, and God creates a plant to, to uh, cover him with shade, and then God kills the plant. Um, so we were saying that uh, we have uh, an opportunity to contrast Jonah with Jesus, that both of them are sitting at the, outside the city. Uh, we see Jesus in the gospel sitting outside the city of Jerusalem. Here we see Jonah sitting outside the city, and, and Jonah's heart is judgment and wanting to see God punish these people and not show them mercy. And in contrast, we see Jesus sitting outside the city mourning over it and wanting to show mercy towards his people. And uh, we were saying there's, there's even a picture here of, uh, you know, Jesus wants to, to actually die in his people's place. Uh, Jonah is, is asking God to just kill him out of uh, spite and, and pity and anger that, that God has done this. 
Um, and and it's this beautiful picture of, of God wanting to show mercy and how merciful he is even to Jonah in the midst of his failure and disobedience. But um, God's heart is is mercy and, and patience and long-suffering. And um, it's, it's a beautiful picture of who God is and who Christ is. Yeah, sure is. Yeah. We're, we're going to go and, to the other group, which also has Jonah 4. Well, let me, yeah, go ahead. That's right. Because we can't, we got to leave some for them too. <laughs> All right. Let's stand up. Kind of the, the last thing that the Lord said to Jonah is, you've had pity on the plant for which you had not labored nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, which are more than one, 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left and much livestock. And so it's a, for us, just a lesson um, for God's character to see God's character and how Jonah didn't see it at first. You know, God is compassionate, slow to anger, full of mercy, not willing that anyone should perish, but all should come to repentance. And, you know, God had, God's just showing Jonah, Hey, look, I'm, I want to have mercy on these guys. I want to pour out my grace on them. But like they weren't, Jonah wasn't seeing that. He was like looking more towards the temporary things and he couldn't see God's um, attributes too. And how God was drawing out that and Jonah was asking him these questions. He wasn't pounding him down with a condemnation or with a critical spirit like humans do to one another, like Pharisees do. But he was drawing him out with questions. Is it right to be angry with them? He asked him that twice. And so that's just how God is like personal to the Jonah. Um, but not only that, but God's um, personal. And he, he's willing that the whole city would uh, come to repentance. And um, so, yeah, just some extra little things to add with what he said. Yeah, that's, that's excellent. Both teams. That's good. Is that the two Jonas? That's the, yeah. Do we have three Jonas? No, two will do. Two, two will do. do. Okay. Yeah. No, those are great insights, and um, I think it, you really nailed it because uh, Jonah needed a savior too, and and so God was saying, "Hey, Jonah, like I love these people because of their ignorance," because He said they don't even know their right hand from the left. I love them because even in their ignorance, but I love you even in your arrogance, mm-hmm. right? And you could almost take like the parable of the prodigal son. It's really about two brothers, the elder brother and younger brother. And God, the father loved the the prodigal that went away because of his ignorance and also loved the elder brother because of his, in his arrogance. And then you follow that theme throughout the scriptures and all of Jesus teaching. And everyone needs Jesus, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and the end of Jonah really parallels with the end of the story of the prodigal son uh, because both of those end with the father going out to the pouting person outside the party. That's great. And he's like, there's a party inside. Do you want to come in? Do you want to celebrate? And uh, they each end on a cliffhanger. Is Jonah going to change his heart? Is he going to come in and celebrate that God loves Gentiles and that God has a plan of redemption that's bigger than him and his little race? Um, Or is he going to stay outside in his pity party? That's great. All right, Second uh, Samuel 9 is, is the next one. Is there one group that has it, or, or is it two? All right, you're closer, so you can start first. Hey, guys, my name is Shane. Um, so, yeah, we had Second Samuel chapter 9. Um, 
the very the very first verse we see that David is desiring to show um, mercy um, in accordance with his commitment that he made to Jonathan, someone from the house of Saul. Um, that's that commitment and that covenant is found in First Samuel chapter twenty, which is sort of a cross-reference text of importance to establish the context of why he's making this this act of mercy, showing this act of mercy. So he extends mercy to Mephibosheth, and in verse 8, um, we, read, we read this. Then he bowed himself and said, What is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? Um, and so there readily, immediately, we see um, David desires to show this mercy, um, and when he goes to do it, um, yeah, Mephibosheth acknowledges as a lame man that I am nothing to this culture. I am nothing. I am sinful. I am broken. And yet David, still desiring to show that mercy, acknowledges that this man is in need of grace and that he's in need of mercy. And so too, humanity, apart from Jesus Christ, is in need of grace and in need of mercy. And what does Christ do at Calvary? He sheds his blood on the cross. He extends his mercy and his grace to, un, you know, sort of undeserving recipients. And so we get to, we get to proclaim, we get to hold that and have that. Um, in verse 11, sort of a, another key text, he says, um, this servant shall eat at my table. Um, let me see just real quick. Um, sorry. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my Lord, the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, Micho, whatever, I don't know. And all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, right? Continually, forever, without end. Lame in both his feet, right? So he's still, to the culture, maybe valueless. But what does he have now? this opportunity to sit at this table forevermore. And so too, we in Jesus Christ shall never not behold his glory forever. And we don't deserve that. And yet we have that and we hold that. And that's why we're here. That's why we're convinced of the word of God. And so, yeah, praise the Lord. Thank you. So we have a, a second group uh, with some other looks. Yep. Hopefully they, they left some for you. Yeah, I know. <laughs> So we actually looked at this passage from two different perspectives. We looked at the first one as from the me perspective. And so just to get an idea of what not to do, right? So we looked at um, we should give up or we should give to the poor just like David did, right? And then pointing the finger, how many people are you helping? So that's how we kind of went from the me perspective. And then from the Christ-centered perspective, we went from uh, we put ourselves in the place of Mephibosheth, basically. And we looked at, you know, just as David did with Mephibosheth, so Jesus did with us. David sought him out, even as Jesus sought us out. David brought us, or brought Mephibosheth out of hiding, just like Jesus did with us in our shame and our sin. And um, he eased our fears, even as, as David did. He said, don't fear. And also, um, going back to, like, eternity, you know, we've been brought to... Christ's table, not just a table of fellowship and communion with Christ, but also one day the marriage supper of the Lamb as well, right? So it takes us all the way out to, to Revelation, to, to the end and consummation of things. Oh, That's wonderful. great. Yeah, those are really great, really great insights. Mike, don't you think? This is amazing. These, pe these people are incredible. I, I love it. They've been yeah. paying attention. 
<laughs> it's and, God's word. And I, I think your your whole thing on fear, because uh, we, we're fearful because we don't, we don't understand yet. We, we don't have knowledge of the grace of God. Mm. So we live in fear. So if you think about David as the one greater in da- than David is Jesus. He's the son of David that's seeking out those who are lame. They can't stand for themselves. They can't stand in their own righteousness. So they're in hiding because they're, and it's, I love how you said the grace of God, is this how what I heard, brought him out of, was willing. And so you think about people's thinking about the gospel. They don't really know, if they live in fear or they're trying to perform for God, they don't really know the gospel yet. You know, so they're hiding from God because they are connected with their sinfulness. So Mephibosheth is thinking, the last person I want to see is David because he's going to kill me. Hmm. And so David, in his heart, is seeking after Mephibosheth just to bless him. And how does the world live like that? You know, they, they don't really know how good God is through the gospel and the sacrifice that he gave. And so they're hiding from God. They don't, they don't understand the grace of God. And I think that's one of the, what a classic portraits of God's grace, the gospel of grace in Mephibosheth. And then he seats us at the table. Yeah. And think about that table of David with like Joab and Absalom and oh boy. Solomon and Tamar. They're all, and yet he's lame in his feet, but when he's sitting at that table, they're all at the same level, right? Because the cross brings us all at the same level, right? There's we're all all men are equal at the foot of the cross and at his table. I don't know. Just so good. What do you I'm think, Mike? Worshiping right now. Yeah. Yeah. And to think as you as you mentioned that like he was prone towards hiding, you know? And so the king, David, had to send a messenger mm-hmm. to overcome the fear and the reluctance and the shame of the person. And like brothers and sisters, like God's in, you know, those of us that teach his word, we get to be like the servants of the king that go to Mephibosheth and say, no, no, the king wants to see you. And guess what? He's not angry at you. Yeah. You know, something has taken place and you're actually welcome at his table. Yeah, that's good. <sighs> All right, Matthew, Matthew 13. I know, I know my group's got one. And is there another Matthew 13? All right, I'm going to go to Wes. Hey, guys. My name's Wes. In Matthew 13, 44 through 50, which looks at the... The parable of the, the man that finds the treasure hidden in the field, sells all he has to buy it. And then real similar, the man, the merchant searching for the pearls who sold all he has to acquire that great, the pearl of great price. Kind of think you can look at it both ways. And there's a, a really easy us-centered one of, of we're that man and we better sell all we have. And the idea of the field being hidden and something you have to look for, something you have to sacrifice for will Will you surrender to get the kingdom of heaven? What are you holding on to? Or to flip it and say that Jesus is the man and, and consider really similar to the Mephibosheth thing that, that we were hidden, we were hiding and he came and found us and he gave everything for us. And that picture of then from his sacrifice we're invited to participate in the kingdom of heaven and to, to follow his example in sacrifice. Great, great. Awesome. All right, we too, uh, we too had Matthew, four, uh, Matthew 13, 44 through 50. Uh, in a like manner, we see three different likenesses of the kingdom of heaven, one being treasure, uh, one being of fine pearls, and then we get to fish. Uh, the first two are very similar in that um, 
these objects, uh, that's it, just objects who have done nothing in and for themselves are somewhere hidden in a place. And they are considered so valuable that someone has to come and receive it. And that someone, as he's already described, being Jesus, uh, steps down from his glory, his throne, gives up everything, even to the point of death on a cross, so that he could obtain these objects. And immediately, we were probably thinking to ourselves, you know, I'm treasure, I'm fine pearl. But when we keep on reading into the, uh, the last section of the kingdom of heaven, we see angels gathering up fishes, and those fishes are divided between good and evil. And they use the term specifically righteous. And if we looked in the mirror, we'd be like, well, I'm not righteous. Uh, and we begin to get really concerned. But it is the blood of Christ and his righteousness that covers us so that the angels could clearly identify who is going to be entering into the kingdom of heaven and enjoy eternity. That's really good. Now, I love that about the fishes. Um, like those who hear the, your, value, your value to God. So you think about the field. Let's think about it this way. He doesn't just go get the treasure. He buys the whole field because there's a treasure in there. And I think of 1 John 2, 2, that he died not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And Jesus actually came to buy, pay for the whole world, the sins of the whole world. He bought the field so that he, you're the treasure in it right? And when you get that, then you respond to the gospel, and that's that separation of the, of the two fishes there, that there's, there's those who have the righteousness of Christ, that is, you know, it's his unmerited favor of his grace, and it's, it's our, uh, the justification through faith, and then those who don't, who are depending on their own righteousness, yeah, and you know, a lot, a lot of people look at that passage and they'd say, oh, well, this is telling us that the, the gospel, right, like Jesus is such a treasure that you should give everything in order to obtain him. But if you look at the previous parable, Jesus says in that parable, the field represents the world. So who is the one who has given everything in his joy to have the world, to purchase the world and you in it? And that's Jesus. Yeah, and I think the kingdom is like a two, two sides of the coin thing. You could, I think that's the primary yeah. thing to point us to Jesus. But then once a person sees this grace of God, their value in him, they don't, then it changes everything about you. Then you want to go and spend your life yeah. on, on buying the pearl and giving everything. It's not out of compulsion. You're not trying to earn any points by it. You're just, you're so, you're living out of your uh, the gospel. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, we'll move on to the numbers passage so who can raise their hand for that. But then, yeah, as, as we're heading there, yeah, just, just the idea of like Jesus sacrificed everything to get what he was after. Mm -hmm. And so we're not supposed to read that and be like, oh, what a relief. I thought I was going to have to sacrifice stuff to follow Jesus. Like, uh -huh. no, actually, we are called to lives of sacrifice as well, mm -hmm. but responsive sacrifice to his mm -hmm. ultimate and yeah. preeminent and, and prevenient sacrifice. Yeah, like uh, you guys know, 2 Corinthians 5.14, it says, the love of Christ compels us because we're convinced that if one died for all, then those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sakes died and was raised. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. All right, who's got, who's the, Okay. Got numbers. All right, so numbers 14. Oh, sorry. 
Um, yeah, so it's the story of the uh, children of Israel. They're wandering through the desert. They're getting pretty weary on their journey, and they're just like pretty much complaining, saying like, if only had died in Egypt, like let's go back to the wilderness, and just not just being disobedient, not really trusting in God's promise for them to enter this land, um, even though there's enemies in it. And they sent spies out and they're saying, no, like their protection is gone. God's going to give you this land. And there's just this this disobedience. And they're actually getting ready to stone uh, Moses and Aaron and raise up a new leader. And so Moses kind of on behalf of the people kind of um, intercedes for them. So we kind of saw it as, you know, um, kind of like a foreshadow of Jesus who would intercede for the people of God and you look in the book of Hebrews and Jesus is the better way compared to Moses. And just this idea of it's hard to walk in obedience to God, even though he has great things in store for you, because there's a lack of trust and a lot of issues and traumas that we have. But the promise is that you find in Romans, I'll have to pull it up, I don't know it offhand. But this is kind of like, I feel like the gospel in there is uh, Romans 5.19 says, For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. So just the fact that Jesus, he was the obedient one, even to the point of the cross, even to the point of death and suffering, that through his obedience, not, not on what we did, but what on he did, that we can enter into all the promises of God that he has for us and the eternal life. So I guess what not to do would be like, well, don't be so weak, have faith, trust God, like, stop. you know, stop being a baby, just go for it, you know, so. Yeah, wonderful, yeah, and we have a feeling there's more to it than just that, so, yeah, thank you. Yeah, so I'm just gonna piggy- piggyback off him a little bit, as you guys called, and you're going through who had what passage, everyone's like, hopefully not numbers, Oh. So we got numbers, so, but, um, yeah, basically, like, what he was saying, like, they are on their way to the promised land, and they start grumbling again about the season that they're in in the desert, and they even go so far to say, like, why, like, let's go back to Egypt, let's go back to the place that we were suffering in, and so many of us have those seasons where we go through something hard in the moment, we go, I wish it was like that back then, when actually back then was worse. Has anyone ever had a moment like that? I hope I'm not the only one, but... No. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, so they're just, like, struggling with the season that they're in at the moment. And then uh, uh, they're complaining. They're forgetting the promise that God said that they would um, go to the promised land just like he said he would take them out of Egypt. So they're forgetting God's promises. And uh, they... Uh, it, for a section, it talks about how God's like, how long will you people despise me? How long will... They not believe in spite of all the signs that I've done among them. And so, like, he's talking about judgment. And so all of us could easily go, okay, if you, you know, disobey God, like, you deserve judgment, which is absolutely true. You know, it's not, you don't want to stray away from telling the truth. But if you read a little bit further, which we had to do, we see that Moses intercedes. And so, like Jesus, um, what Jesus does for us, he also intercedes, but he also becomes a sacrifice. And, um... Yeah, that's basically what we got. So um, we never want to forget that judgment we should have, but we don't have because Jesus paid for it. So, yeah, that's stellar stuff. Okay, who has Genesis 22? Hi, my name is Dave. 
What we, we saw in this, uh, in Genesis 22, if you guys didn't read the book, this is where Abraham is uh, asked by God to sacrifice his son that he truly loved. Isaac was a gift, his only son. You guys see the correlation here? <clears throat> let, me, let me paint the picture for you. Abraham was asked to sacrifice his one and only son. And he did so willingly. We, we see this, you know, as such a picture of God willingly um, sacrificing his son, Jesus. We even see um, him saying, here I am, willingly answering up to God, here I am, and then taking his son and his son willingly going, even asking his father, Father, where's, where's the wood? I mean, where's the ram? I see the wood in the fire. Where's, where's the sacrifice? And the father saying, the Lord himself will provide a sacrifice. And he did. So you can, you can draw so much from this, um, this piece of scripture that shows the sacrifice of God and his son Jesus. Um, we can see the willingness of Jesus, the obedience of both God and son. Uh, or Abraham and son. Um, there was so much that came out of this. We, we've, you know, I, I've decided that this is going to be something that I look deeper into. Uh, there's so much here. Um, like the brother was telling us, you could preach four sermons out of this. So thanks. And, and here's right. the second one. <laughs> Hey, I'm Stephen, and so our team was, again, Genesis 22, 1 through 14, and what we got out of this was the central truth of faithfulness, you know, God's faithfulness towards his, um, towards Abraham and Isaac, but also Isaac towards Abraham, Abraham towards Isaac, all this centrality of being faithful, you know, towards God and that God is so faithful towards us that he provides that perfect sacrifice, you know, that, you know, uh, we pulled out in verse 12, it says, do not lay a hand on the boy, he said, do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And thinking of how God has not withheld Jesus Christ, his son for us you know, that he was that perfect sacrifice. And just, again, that beautiful depiction of what Christ did for us. And so that's what we got. Yeah, yeah it seems that the Apostle Paul maybe has this yeah. specifically in mind. Nick, were you going to quote this? I was, but you got it. You're going to read it. I was going to quote it badly, so you go for it. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how shall he not with him graciously give us all, all things? Yeah. So we have this like language that seems that is fresh in Paul's mind, speaking about that the one who did not spare his son is now for us. So I know this, this group was like hoping to not get Numbers 14. I have a feeling every group was hoping to get Genesis 22. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, we're, we're, yeah, we have Psalm 1 and then Exodus 18. So we should have one group for each of these. Yeah, so, so right here? Psalm 1. Okay. All right, who's the spokesperson? The closest to me? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm Dane, and uh, 
Oh, shall I turn face the audience? Yeah, okay, good, good. Um, so yeah, we, we uh, did Psalm 1, and right off the bat, uh, it starts out with, uh, blessed is the man. And we talked around how very easy this would be to make uh, man-centric, um, because it's blessed is the man. And it's like, well, we all want to be that blessed man. And so then you go down the list, and, and the list of, like, well, don't walk in the counsel of the wicked. Don't stand in the way of sinners. You know, let's not hang out with these people. Um, and you can easily go down that list and, and make it about us. Um, but then we talked around, once you get down, especially into uh, verse 5, therefore the wicked sh- will not stand in, in judgment or sinners in the congregation of the righteous, um, that we're all sinners, we're all we're wicked. And so we, we can't do this. Like, you can't be this on our own. Um, and so starting at the beginning with, with this being about Jesus, that uh, blessed is Jesus, um, that he's the man. And then you go to, go down through that list um, of who he is and to, uh, that he delights in, in his law, he delights in, in his word. Um, and that this uh, is something that obviously we, we can't truly accomplish on our own, um, but that he is that tree um, planted by streams of water. We talked around the, the imagery of that and tying it into other passages in scripture like John 15, abiding in the vine, and that that's where... Uh, you know, we, we can actually have fruit come from our lives is by abiding in, in Christ and the fruit of the Spirit um, being shown in us. Also, the imagery, uh, I think uh, you said earlier earlier about that the end of the book has all the answers um, and that like just the imagery of, of revelation and, and that uh, it's like the new Eden with the, the tree and the, the rivers of life coming um, from the, the throne room from Christ. Um, that this is about him, and that uh, the only way we, we will be counted as among the, the congregation of the righteous um, is if we're found in him. And so uh, blessed is the man or woman who's found in the man, Christ. Very good. That's very great. Thanks, Sam. I actually, uh, I recently heard someone preach that in the way you were describing, the way that you didn't do it, right? Like in a bad way. And he basically said that, you know, hey, good thing we are these righteous people and not these wicked people. Please, let's all pat ourselves on the back and go out to lunch. That was the message. But look at what it says there at the end. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. That's kind of a problem if all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? But thank God for Jesus, right? The righteous one who is our advocate before the Father who has imputed his righteousness to us. The yeah. gospel. It's good news. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Nick, if you don't like my sermons, you can tell me in person, <laughs> not in front of everybody, okay? <laughs> um, who's, who's got Exodus 18? Everybody, I'm Sarah. All right, so we had Exodus 18, and the, the big theme that we got was uh, that Moses was good, but Jesus is greater. And um, we saw that Moses was having a conversation with his father-in-law, Jethro, and they were just talking about how God delivered them from Egypt, all these different things. And then he not so subtly gets rebuked by him. And says, like, hey, why are you doing all of this by yourself? So from there, we could take the correlation um, out of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, and we see Jesus. So we, here we see Moses. Uh, he, was, he was the deliverer. God used him as a deliverer to deliver the people out of Egypt. Jesus is the deliverer from sin and shame. 
um, we see that where Moses offered sacrifices to the Lord, Jesus was the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, the end all sacrifice. Um, where Moses was a prophet who gave the law, Jesus fulfilled the law. He came to fulfill the law. Um, where Moses interceded and sta- stood as a, as a judge to the people, Jesus not only interceded for for us, intercedes for us or judges us, but he's the prophet, the priest, the king. He's greater. Amen. And then we see that uh, while Moses needed help at the end, he needed help. Jesus was able. He didn't need any help. It's done. It's a done deal. Um, Yeah, Jesus is able. So the whole thing was that Moses was a shadow. The old covenant was a shadow of the new covenant in Christ. That's awesome. Wonderful. Wonderful. All right. Well, hey, that was long. Thanks for listening all the way to the end. I hope that the kind of multi-voiced aspect of this was um, was encouraging to you. Uh, personally, I love to hear people kind of get it for the first time, seeing how there's not just a few references to the gospel of Jesus scattered throughout the Old and New Testament, but that together the Bible is a unified story pointing people towards the good news of the reconciliation of the gospel of Christ. So thank you so much for listening. Do check out the show notes for other Christ-centered preaching related resources that we have available for you. Well, I hope that you are subscribed to this show on YouTube or Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to uh, content. Uh, Because in these next couple of weeks, there's a lot of really good interviews that are coming your way. Uh, Next week, next Tuesday, uh, there's an interview that I did with Reverend Chad Brooks, Uh, He is the first Methodist that's ever been on this show. After more than 221 episodes, we finally have talked to a Methodist. And we have a conversation about what true pastoral productivity actually looks like. And, And here's a hint. It's not about life hacks and time management skills. Uh, In addition to Chad Brooks next week, in the coming weeks, uh, there's a really stimulating conversation with Dr. Greg Davidson and Dr. Kenneth Turner about the manifold beauty of Genesis 1 and uh, looking at this passage through different layers and levels and how we're able to teach and preach and show Uh, manifold beauty from this passage and from so many others. Also, uh, Dr. Uche Anazor uh, speaks with me about uh, pastoral and congregational apathy and how we can break out of it. So all that to say, if you haven't subscribed yet, uh, boy, you're missing out. A final invitation for you. Uh, Did you know that we have an Expositors Collective uh, private Facebook community? And there are more than 300 uh, preachers, Bible teachers, women's ministry leaders, Sunday school volunteers. And it's an opportunity for us to ask questions, get feedback, have conversations about our personal study and public proclamation of God's word. So... Go to facebook.com slash groups slash expositors collective, and you're going to have to request to be let in 
And then I can't wait to have you join us and turn this from a monologue that you listen to and turn it into a dialogue that you're conversant in. Okay, I hope that this episode and all that we do at the Expositors Collective helps you to grow in your personal study and public proclamation of God's word. Thank you.